This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. Uh, my name is Reverend Otis Moss. I'm the senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. A ballad behind bars, or you could say real rock from the rock. An unusual musical happening in a most unusual place. The state prison Well, I have to say public enemy, but specifically, you know, Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn, I said never. Here is a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had a bar. I grew up during what some would call the golden age of hip hop in Cleveland, Ohio. And you didn't play hip hop on the radio. There was a, sh a show, Bud McFarlane, Friday night in Cleveland. And he was the mix master, but that's when you heard the songs. You only heard them in parties, especially basement house parties. When I got older, there was this group, Public Enemy. First, it was Yo Bum Rush the Show, but then the Nation's album blew me away. You know, Rebel Without a Pause, listening to it over and over and over and over again. But when I got to college, and after I read the biography, autobiography of Shakur, George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, Soul on Ice, the autobiography of Malcolm X, all of these pieces, and then I listened to Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, all of a sudden, I now see people in the prison system through a political lens. And Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos became the anthem for that. Don't you know I caught a CO falling asleep on death row? I grabbed his gun and he did what I said so. And every man's the man got served. Along with the time they served, decency was deserved. To understand my demands, I gave a warning. I wanted the governor, y'all. And plus the warden to know that I was innocent. Because I'm militant, posing a threat. You better government. My plan said I had to get out and break north. Just like Oliver's neck, I had to get off. My boys had the feds in check. They couldn't try. Rick no, Rubin and uh, DJ Terminator X took from what was known as the Stax Vault, which was essentially Isaac Hayes' hot buttered soul, <laughs> and then remixed it for Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. The Stax sound was the radical, organic, edgy sound coming out of the South. There was Motown of the North, which was smoothed out so that it would be appropriate for a white middle-class audience. Stax sound was not. Stack sound still had the holler and the sound of Mississippi and the church all in there, but was the only production facility in the country that was fully integrated. 
So the president was, who ran the company, was black. The owners were brother and sister who were white. This was unheard of in America. And that's where Isaac Hayes got his start writing. Everything that they did always connected with the movement. got the uh, album Hot Buttered Soul. I think I found it in I think my friend Ed's father's crates. His, his dad collected all these. I was like, let me play this. You know, you know, had Isaac with his bald head on, on the cover. And I played, I was like, wait a minute, that's Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. And so then I realized, oh my goodness, that this is connected to something else. But it was much later when I started finding out about Stax and the Memphis sound and what Stax meant to music and how for example, the Staple Singers, interestingly enough, they go to Trinity and the song I'll Take You There, which was an anthem, you know, in many ways during, during the 60s and finding out from them that they refused to compromise when they came north. And they say that we can't compromise what we're doing. Our music has to talk about spirituality, has to talk about God, but it also has to talk about what's going on in the world. So when we sing Respect Yourself, we're talking about the anthem of people walking in Selma. You know, that's what Respect Yourself was. And in many ways, they helped birth Public Enemy because they were not just staple singers, but I'm talking about the whole stack sound because that's Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, Isaac Hayes, Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire. They were the consciousness in terms of music. As I'm in college and I'm being educated about all this stuff, and then I hear Black Still in the Hour of Chaos, and I realize that musically they're connecting to the movement, and lyrically they're redefining what it means to be a prisoner. And I got 52 Brothers bruised, battered, scarred, but hard. I mean, I mean, this, this is powerful. I'm looking for that fence, and they're a breakout of a prison. Why? Because he's a political prisoner. And throughout the entire album, shout outs to Joanne Chesimard. You remix Jesse Jackson. I don't know what this world is coming to in there. You've got, you're remixing Farrakhan in there. And another gentleman by the name of Khalid Muhammad. And so you have this mixture of black nationalism, kind of postmodern Islam, and prophetic Christian religion, all wrapped up in one album. It blew me away. And so I began to see uh, prison 
in a political context, which I think Michelle Alexander in the, in the book New Jim Crow frames it that way, but Blacks in the Hour of Chaos would be the anthem for the New Jim Crow. Rolling Stone says, out of the hundred albums that have been produced in the last 70 years, you have to include Nations as not just one of the greatest hip-hop, one of the greatest American albums ever produced, period. In terms of what the album, I think, meant and how it catapulted and, and raised the consciousness, I think, of, of a generation of people. Because you want to first find out, who is he talking about? Who is Joanne Chesimard? Who is this woman? And all of a sudden you find out it's, oh, it's Asada Shakur. Oh, wait a minute. Well, now, I know another guy who was with Digital Underground. His name was Tupac Shakur. And so, so you begin to make all these connections. You're, you're building, you know, connecting all these dots, all because Chuck D throws out a name in a particular context. And, and that's just the beauty of, uh, of Public Enemy. Uh, they, they really are the, the consciousness moral consciousness, I think, of, of the hip-hop community. As I ventured into the courtyard, followed by 52 brothers, bruised, battered, and scarred, but hard. Going out with a bang, ready to bang out. The power from the sky, from the tower, shots rang out. A high number of dose, yes, and something that a figure, I trigger my steel stand and hold my post. This is what I mean, an anti-nigger machine. If I come out alive, then they won't come clean. Then I threw up, my steel bullets flew up. Into my surprise, the wall and tower blew up. Who shot? What? Who? So I grew up in an area called Shaker Heights, is a suburb of Cleveland on the, on the on the east side. Cleveland is uh, separated by east and west. My father was a pastor, as a as a PK, and came up in an environment where I, you know, did a lot of athletics. I enjoyed going to school, but I was kind of focused on the uh, athletic end. And on the weekend, like I mentioned about Bud McFarlane, is was finding a you know a great house party wherever it was, whether it's going to Shaker, Cleveland Heights, Cleveland, wherever we need to go to Euclid uh, or whatever to find a place. And there were DJs that people followed from place to place who played music that a lot of times came fresh from, from New York and other places, or was something that was indigenous to Cleveland at, at that time. You know, there was a group called Levert uh, and, and the OJs, but they played in high school and people would follow around the band, but they also had several guys that were, were DJs in their group that people wanted to, to hear. Like, oh man, you know, the DJ from LaVert, you definitely want to get to a party, you know, where he's a part of. So I'm in church, but at the same time, you know, I love hip hop and soul music and R&B 
and it spoke to me on so many different levels. It's, you know, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a great place to grow up. Easy does it. Do it easy. Push up on a cutie and let it squeeze me. Relax a little. Let your body work. Heavy days in effect. And I'm cool. There was a working class vibe of the Midwest. People who worked, because many of the people who migrated to, to Cleveland from places like Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina, they came up there for steel work. And so there's this blues vibe when you see steel mill after steel mill shut down. You see a city like Cleveland go into default, go bankrupt. You see just businesses leave and all of a sudden your downtown is ghost. The suburbs thrive, but the downtown is dead. There's a different kind of vibe, I think, growing up in a Midwestern city where you witness so much of the vibrancy economically in the hands of a few. And then you see that group exit and the effect that it has on the city. I think in other areas like LA and New York, you have to have a multiplicity of kind of economic forces. Where in the Midwest, you may have two or three central businesses that everybody can point to and say, well, yeah, when that was shut down, it affected everybody. I learned at an, at an early age that the importance, and I learned this from Wyatt T. Walker, who uh, was pastor in, in Harlem. We worked very closely with King, was good friends with my, my mother and father. He wrote a book called Son Somebody's Calling My Name, which was about black music. And they had, he had in the book, and I remember having a conversation with him, he had a musical tree. He said, and in this musical tree is a diagram in his book that says that if you want to understand any group sociologically, just listen to the music. And he has all the roots of different aspects of black music, work songs, spirituals, gospel, jazz, and blues, and R&B. I said, you got to add hip-hop now, man. He wrote this thing back in the, I think it was in the 70s or something. I mean, it's been reprinted tons of times. I said, you, you got to put hip-hop in there. And that really helped me with a particular, I guess, engagement theory of hip-hop that was influenced by my father and you know, Dr. Walker of examining music. He says, there's no such thing as bad music. There's no such thing as, as, as negative music, it's intent behind it. Uh, there may be better musicians here and there, but every time in history we've always had, according to my father, we've always had music that was descriptive of the existential condition. So blues was descriptive of the existential condition, whereas gospel was the eschatological, or what God is going to do in the future, perspective and black music at its best fuses the two it says my condition is this but my hope is this it's that when it fuses those two it is right to produce something revolutionary
and downs. You better think about it or you won't be around. What we need is a little bit of love. Sent by one from heaven up above. Take a picture, it's simple and plain. This ain't no game, you know what I'm saying. So he would then tell me that when you would sing a song such as, for example, the double entendres of the spirituals, people think all these happy little spirituals, but when you say something such as down by the riverside, it's a double entendre. You're saying down by the riverside, but at the same time you're saying, when it gets dark tonight, we're going to be down by the riverside, we out of here. <laughs> but I can sing it in front of you, and you don't know what I'm saying, because there's a double entendre. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home, is nothing but a double entendre talking about leaving the plantation. Or before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave to go home to be with my Lord. Song of resistance, you know, kill me, I will fight. There will be a revolution before I will be a slave. And so you have that storytelling and fusing the existential and the, the eschatological. And so through college, I started to develop this kind of idea of what I call post soul theory in and around hip hop and hip hop culture that hip hop is so powerful but also unique is that it's one of the first cultural creations that does not develop directly out of the church. It's the cousin of the church. It's birthed out of a deindustrialized landscape. So where economics were pulled away, hip hop is born. But it was not born out of that matrix of the black church. It's right outside, listening through the window. Just got word from my man's on the island. He said he needed guidance. Snickers on the streets is riling. He looked to God but can't find him. So he demands silence from the glance signs. The sympathy, sympathy. Only thing plain is demand violence. No lying, niggas just won't let go. They iron. They want to burn your molecules until you let go irons. Treat beef like they let go lions. So don't iron. They get the wrong message, wrong message. Put you on that long stretcher Too much pressure God bless you when they send me wet ya They told me more dress up I'm giving too many lectures And I'm putting in too many effort In my nouns and verbs Like they gon' catch up Fuck what you must turn The rap artist becomes the griot Now I communicate to you The existential situation of our community Even though I'm 16 I can tell you what happens in my neighborhood. No one can share it the way I can. I can compact an entire dissertation in three minutes. That's the beauty of hip hop. And you will remember it. And I'll put a beat behind it. But that's very African because that's how Africans communicate. And Africans communicate in reference to that in terms of spirituality, the church, whether it's the church, Islam, whatever you're talking about. But in spirituality is that you put that beat you put that rhythm and you put those words in motion and they communicate and people remember. It's the same way in the church when the preacher preaches. He doesn't preach in a boring lecture, he preaches with a rhythm. And then when they have a close, which they call a hoop sometimes, that close can have the orality and the power of a lyricist who's spitting lyrics because it's something that's very African that comes out of the African tradition and comes out of that spiritual tradition. So hip hop is the cousin of these other forms that have come out of the church. It's been listening through the window and heard the echoes within the church, but it was birthed out of a deindustrialized landscape where the economics of the community were devastated 
by policies, especially during the Reagan administration in the 80s. I think that's where rap develops its consciousness. Yeah, so you could say Reagan helped raise Public Enemy and Grandmaster Flash. The end of the Reagan era. I'm like level 12 old enough to understand the shit that changed forever. They declared the war on drugs, like a war on terror. But what they really did was let the police terrorize whoever. But mostly black boys, but they would call us niggas. And lay us on our belly while they fingers on their triggers. They boots was on our head, they dogs was on our crotches. And they would beat us up if we had diamonds on our watches. And they would take our drugs and monies as they pick our pockets. I guess that that's the privilege of policing for some profit. But thanks to Reaganomics, prison turned to profits. Cause Free labor's the cornerstone of U.S. economics. Cause slavery was abolished unless you are imprisoned. You think I ambush it and then read the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude and slavery, it prohibits. That's why they giving drug offenders time and double digits. My father and mother literally met as a result of the civil rights movement. They come out of that. My father's first wife passed uh, when she was giving birth to her child. He was single, raising my sister. Met my mom, who was working for SCLC. He was a lieutenant in SCLC. And they were married by a gentleman that some people have heard of named Martin Luther King Jr. So I always say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dr. King, you know, literally. But he understood because he had such respect for artists such as Harry Belafonte, Nina Simone, people who were artists who made a commitment to the movement. He understood very clearly that when an artist is attempting to communicate that which is deeply in their consciousness and in their soul, there are some who are trying to be paid. Now, he's real clear about that. But when someone is deeply trying to communicate that which is in their soul, it comes through. And people connect with that authenticity. Um, he said, I wouldn't go to the concert, I wouldn't buy the album, but I do recognize that there's deep value in what's being said. And it's my role as an elder, this is how he would say it, it's my role as an elder to listen to you and to this music. So teach me so I can be more effective in teaching my generation about what hip hop means. I'm building me a home. Building me a home. I'm 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 building me a home. This earthly house is gonna soon decay. And my soul got a hand. Morehouse College, Dr. King graduated from Morehouse College, Spike Lee graduated from Morehouse College, Edwin Moses, Samuel L. Jackson. At one point, we were probably one of the smaller schools in the nation, but produced more of the doctors, lawyers, and PhDs, black PhDs in the United States. This small, tiny little school. Wonderful experience. But that's the place where I had a student government president who ended up studying with Cornell West later on, a gentleman by the name of Eddie Gall. And Eddie was a couple of years ahead of me, and hearing someone from Moss Point, Mississippi, who was so well-read and deeply connected to hip-hop, and then also introducing the entire freshman class to the last poets. So we had to know Gil Scott Heron, along with knowing P.E., Tribe Called Quest, you know, those folks we liked, but he was making sure that you need to know where they came from, that this, this revolutionary uh, language, where it comes from, you know, can you dig it or leave it alone? That's what he told the entire freshman class. 
I had the opportunity to meet Chuck D at Morehouse. I was in the student government at one point. We were always having discussions with some local artist. And so that was part of, of the Morehouse experience. And then at the same time, having campus at any moment, having a conversation with Dick Gregory, he's just walking along and he just pulls some students around and just says, oh, let's, let's talk about this. What you all are doing is nothing new. I mean, that's, that's Dick Gregory for you. <laughs> you know? not, not too many things I don't agree with, but I don't agree with the fact that Lil Wayne, Wayne do whatever he want to do. It's up to us to change that. And you do that with vibrations. Huh? Didn't start with Lil Wayne. Huh? They killed my Jesus and then told me to call it a good day, so I call it Good Friday and don't see nothing wrong with it. Huh? Huh? Hmm? This didn't just start. And Dick Gregory will school you on, on everything. Um, another gentleman by the name of Willie Ricks, whose name was Mukasa, who was close friends with Kwame Ture, who was Stokely Carmichael. And he's the one who came up with the phrase, black power. And so he would stand up in the, uh, <laughs> in the cafeteria, stand on a chair, and Mukasa would say, Africans, Africans, I've got to tell you something. You're losing your mind. You're losing your mind. Don't let your mind be colonized, African. Like, who is this guy? And this dashiki up here. Oh, that's Mukasa. You know, he coined the phrase black power. Met Khalid Muhammad, who I later found out was the guy on the P.E. album. And the experience on campus is there's the traditional classroom, and then there's the classroom that is right on the yard. And, and that's Morehouse. And that's the beauty of it. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop to the beat, y'all, and you don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop. But one, two, y'all, and you don't stop. Yes, yes, y'all, and you don't stop. Until the beat comes, says the beat is short shot. Come on. Come I met on. this girl when I was 10 years old. And what I love most, she had so much soul. She was old school, and I was just a shorty never knew. Throughout my life, she would be there for me or the regular. Not a church girl, she was secular. Not about the money, no stuff was my checker, but I respected her. She hit me in the heart. A few New York niggas had dinner in the park. But she was there for me, and I was there for her. Pull out a chair for her, turn on the F for her, and just cool out. Cool out and listen to her. Sitting on bone, wishing that I could do eventually if it was meant to be. But it would be because we related physically and mentally, and she was fun then. I'd be geeked when she come around. Slim was fresh, Joe, when she was underground. Original, pure, untapped, but a I used to love her. Right? <laughs> I think is is iconic. It's brilliant, and and Rashid is is a friend, and so I, I got to give a shout out to my to my man. He goes Trinity also. <laughs> and so when I heard I used to love her, it clarified for me the way I was feeling about hip hop. I was struggling with the rise of West Coast. I loved the production. I loved hearing what Dr. Dre did musically, but I struggled with the misogyny. I struggled with, is this Interscope Records exploiting black youth, or is there some authenticity and artistic value in this? Because, I mean, 100 miles and running, there's some stuff on N.W.A.'s album that's just you would never allow a man to communicate this way 
to a child in any other setting. So I always struggle with it. I was like, I get it. I get what you're, you're doing. But at the same time, I'm struggling with this. I get it <laughs> when you're saying blank the police. I understand the way that the police communicate and engage black people. But at the same time, when you have an interlude on your CD that is of a woman performing certain things on that CD, it, it really just turned my stomach. Yes, yes, y'all. It can tell stop. Sit the beat, y'all. It can tell stop. Yes, yes, y'all. It can tell stop. I want to, y'all. It can tell stop. Yes, yes, y'all. It can tell stop. A conference, y'all. It can tell stop. Yes, yes, y'all. It can tell stop. Yo, we gotta be the short shot. Now periodically I would see Old girl at the club, sit at the house party She didn't have a body, but she started getting thick quick Did a couple of videos and became Afrocentric Out goes the weave, in goes the braised bees medallion She was on that tip about stopping the violence About my people she was teaching me By not preaching to me, but speaking to me In a method that was leisurely, so easily I approached When common, I used to love her Uses that as a metaphor, and you're listening to the whole thing you're like you talk about a woman then you realize he's talking about hip-hop and how hip-hop left him and hip-hop said that this is what I want this is what is popular this is what makes money for you that was just absolutely brilliant now someone is articulating the way that I feel about a music that I deeply love and care about but yet I feel that it's been stolen it's now being covered up and corporately being passed around and being pimped and focusing on black pathology instead of the transformative revolutionary spirit that comes out of the Africanity of our experience. And it was just, it was really painful to just hear so much music that was being produced that I'm like, where is this coming from? She dug my rap, that's how we got close. But then she broke to the West Coast. And now it's cool, cause around the same time, I went away to school and I'm a man dub expanded. So why should I stand in her way? She probably get her money in LA. And she did stud, she got big pub of what was foul. She said that the pro black was going out of style. She said Afrocentricity was of the past. So she got in the RB hip house, bass and jazz. Now black music is black music and it's all good. I wasn't salty, she was with the boys in the hood. Cause I was new for her. She was becoming well rounded. I thought it was dope how she was on that freestyle. You listen to Kennebara Dollar in Resurrection. And then you continue on. You, you also notice a huge change in the lyricism of Common. I mean, in terms of the way he even constructs his rhymes, where I think that he moves from imitation to authenticity. He, he came into his own. I'm okay with putting out my vulnerability and raising some questions. He came up in the golden age, as like some people like to say, of hip-hop, and was highly influenced by a variety of sources. And he was trying to reconcile, I think, all of those things, and it came through so clearly in that song, and decided to go from clever to profound in many ways. There are a lot of clever lyricists. I can do more than just be a wordsmith and hammer out the words. That I can tell a story that is, and I think he was really, you know, communicating what was really going on with, in term, internally with, with, with his own spirit. Hey, uh, is this Wale? Who's this? Hey, this is 
is uh, A&R from Cliche Records. I don't know if you remember we spoke oh, last yeah, summer. I remember you. Yeah, well, I've just been checking up on you recently, doing my research, you know, like a good A&R does from his desk in the office. And, um, you know, I see that you're still inside. Uh, yeah, sound like that. Yeah, well, um, I just wanted to tell, tell you a little bit about Cliche Records. Um, we still got a lot of really good projects going on over here. And um, we have some new trends that we're really hopping on. We, you know, we have this one new song that was written um, but nobody's recorded it yet. It's called uh, Crank That Flying Squirrel. Oh, um, where, how does it go? Do it, it's called, uh, it's just called Crank That Flying Squirrel. Oh, Crank That, Crank, crank That, Crank That Squirrel. No, no, not that, it's Dat, like D-A-T. Oh, okay, I got you. Yeah, and um, it's a, just a new dance. I don't know if you've ever seen a flying squirrel go from tree to tree, but it's quite an amazing thing to watch. And when we get a bunch of uh, little teenage black kids doing uh, YouTube videos of it, it's, it's, it's quite a phenomenon, I must say. Looking at the boardroom and artist development groups that take people who are incredibly gifted, artistic, and can do a variety of things, but then say, you know what, I need you to throw a few more bees in here, put an inward more in here, because that's what people will buy, because 70% of hip-hop is purchased by white suburban youth. And so, in other words, black pathology is easy to sell, but consciousness raising is difficult. I maintain that the reason that Barack Obama is president is because so many people listen to Tupac. And the reason that I say that is because an entire generation became comfortable, one, with someone with an African name, number two, understanding the complexity of urban environment. I have no problem with someone, a leader who doesn't necessarily look just like me. I think hip hop helped usher him in, in many ways. And so I think that the approach of, of Reverend Butts, who is a gifted, powerful, amazing leader on so many levels and a graduate of Morehouse College, let me add that. <laughs> the boardroom, especially in a New York, would have been the place to attack. A boardroom that doesn't look like anybody from the hip hop community. A boardroom that doesn't have any women. A, a boardroom that is closed and is looking about how to make profit. And it is no different than when you looked at the early blues artists who did not get any royalties from what from the songs that they produced. The same thing when you start talking about these major record labels. came up in the golden age of hip-hop, got hip-hop out of somebody's trunk. We bought mixed tapes. And so you had an entrepreneurship that developed, an entire industry that was developed that helped support youth. And all of a sudden, corporations say, we can make money off of it. And all of the independent labels were bought out. And when they bought out those independent labels, they then made demands on the artists. And so the music changed. You also have the spread of the crack epidemic you have the war on drugs, and you have Ronald Reagan who's president. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but all those things kind of go together. So when Common says, I used to love her, he raises a fundamental question for everyone who is in love with this music, but at the same time is struggling with the duality of it. Let me put it this way. For one of my friends growing up, if, if he was to play and to listen to Chief Keith, let's put it that way, he's Chicago, Chief Keith. It has no effect on him. When I listen to Chief Keef or my child listens to Chief Keef, there can be ramifications of imitating Chief Keef. 
But my friend who is white, there's no ramifications for his child. I struggle with that, just to understand that there are ramifications as a result of the corporate takeover and imitation of music that claims to be real, but in many ways is nothing more than, just like any TV show, is a stylized creation produced for the mass market. And that's the real challenge. And, and I used to love to raise the question and still struggle with it today. I might have felt a bitch that this chick was creative. Once the man got to her, he altered her later. So that if she got an image and a gimmick, then she can make money. And she did it like a dummy. Now I see her in commercials. She's universal. She used to only swing it with the inner city circle. Now she be in the burbs looking rocking, dressing hip. And on some dumb shit when she comes to the city. Talking about popping blocks, serving rocks, and hitting switches. Now she's a gangster, rolling with gangster bitches. Always smoking blunts and getting drunk. Telling me sad stories. Now she only fucks with the funk. Stressing how hardcore and real she is. She was really the realest before she got into showbiz. I did her. Not just to say I did it. But I'm committed But so many niggas hit it That she's just not the same Letting all these goofies do her I see niggas screaming her And taking her to the sewer But I'ma take her back Hoping that this shit stop Cause who I'm talking about Y'all is hip hop I would say probably 80% of The people in Morehouse Come out of some Strong faith tradition But it was about Not separating But You live your faith it's not about you saying to me, you need to believe X. You live it. End of story. Don't, don't tell me your name is John X. Live it. Don't, don't tell me that uh, you made the Hodge. Live it. Don't tell me you were converted on the third pew on a Wednesday night at a Pentecostal meeting. Live it. One of the best things in seminary, I got connected with a group called Elm City Nation. Elm City Nation was primarily a group of young men in New Haven who were committed to gang violence reduction and trafficking in New Haven. Many of them were brothers and sisters who were a part of street organizations and reformed and whatnot. And that's where I did my internship at Yale because I couldn't find a place that I felt comfortable um, and they were kind enough to allow me to do this. Being a part of Elm City Nation, basically we went into prisons, mostly juvenile detention centers, just sharing with young people about how they could shift their lives. They ended up putting something together that was really unique, was a black expo. Everybody made the claim that it was economic. These were economic issues. So Elm City came up with the idea, let's start an basically start an entrepreneurial program. You really couldn't make money on the streets of New Haven selling anything. You might, it was really interesting when they gave me the breakdown of economics. said, if you do sell, you might make a $5 turnaround because it's, it's such a hot proliferation. I said, now, we started a couple of guys in the business, which is, is kind of funny and ironic, of beeper stores. And said, now, you can make a $25 turnaround off a of beeper. Now, do you want to sell this product, which can get you shot, or you can sell this product over here, which you can actually possibly live your life? And so they were just kind of breaking things down in, in economic terms, and it was just... It was the best education for me. Mm. So, 
Yeah, I graduated from Yale, but I really got a degree from Elm City Nation because they really schooled me in terms of having an economic analysis of how things operate in certain communities. The Roots come alive, live. Everybody has to have The Roots live. Man, Common is on it, but there is a sister who is on there who is one of my favorite singers, by the way, from Philly, Jill Scott, who wrote You Got Me. And the live version speaks so powerfully of the vulnerability that hip-hop could have. It's always spoken with such machismo, but here is this vulnerability of a gentleman who's speaking about being on tour, just doing his thing, working hard, and this sister who has got his heart, that they started building together. And the beauty of that vulnerability, undergirded with a smooth, melodic beat, and of course, Jill Scott's voice spoke to not only about, all right, this is the hard stuff that's happening here on the block, but there are real love stories that happen every day. And there's no love story like one where someone can pack in a whole year of love in a few minutes and tell you the story. Of course, thinking about my wife and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. She's got me, she's got my heart, and, and I have her heart. And hip hop was always singing something that could not speak to that tenderness in my voice. Well, we met in Atlanta. She was at Spelman. I was at Morehouse. And Morehouse and Spelman are right across the street from each other. The Spelman is a, it's all, all women. Morehouse is all men. Met that the freshman year, and uh, pretty much we, you know, been dating, you know, since then. And we, we got married when when I was in seminary, and she was a woman who had all of those southern virtues and, and and vibe. She had a strong southern vibe, and here I was, midwestern, and such incredible balance. She got my heart on so many levels because of her amazing intellectual capacity and insight. Not only was she beautiful, but her mind and her absolute killer humor. She could cut you with a knife and could imitate anybody. She really sh should have been an actress. I mean, I just, you know, my, my wife is funny. I mean, she, I mean she'll, she'll come across being really kind of laid back, but she can go. But I remember, you know, after we, we got married, I said, I want, I want you to hear something. I want you to hear something that I think is the greatest story I've ever heard that killed me. 
and uh, it was Richard Pryor's Little Baby Feats. Said, I'll take you over to Jefferson where the voodoo lady lived, have a fixing for you. See, because the voodoo lady named Miss Rudolph lived over there, she could do it. That was her name, Miss Rudolph, see? They named her after that deer. <laughs> and she was good, too, man. She had this monkey's foot around her neck and a three-legged monkey. Yeah. And that monkey didn't give her no trouble. And see, what I, and, I, and I relate prior to the storytelling of a great hip-hop artist, because Pryor tells a story of this old man from Peoria, Illinois, who goes to see a voodoo doctor, a woman. And I just can't tell you, we were driving to Virginia, and we had to pull over in the car because we were both in tears. But he's such a powerful storyteller with his timing. And any good hip-hop artist does the same thing. Timing tells a story. And then being married to someone who has such wit, who has such great timing, who can just say it just right when it's supposed to be said and just kill an entire place. And that song, You Got Me, I always vibe and think about when I first met her in church. Uh, and I went and told my roommate, I, I met my wife. And I was like, this, this sister is it. She is the end all. And then saw her again when the Alphas were uh, finishing their, their pledge process. It was just like school days, you know, they were, you know, one more step to the light. And I saw her again, and I, when I saw her, I said, "You're Monica." She's like, "Yes." Yeah. I said, "I've been looking for you," and that was, and that was, and that was, that was, that was it, man. And you got me is, for me personally, an anthem that always makes me think of her. Hip-hop matters because it, it, it's, it's the blues of the postmodern era. Hip-hop matters because artistically, it can help shed light on some of the most pertinent issues of, of, our, of our world and of our generation. Hip-hop matters because it's human and it speaks to the full humanity of who we are. Hip-hop matters because it has to grow out of its patriarchal paradigms. Hip-hop matters because it speaks about class and speaks about poverty. Hip-hop matters because it's just good art. Hip-hop matters because it can introduce people to God. And hip-hop matters because it has the power of speaking about a people who were brought to this country, forced to come here, but yet they end up once again just like blues, just like jazz, just like gospel, and now like hip-hop, giving America something it would never have had before. That's why hip-hop matters. I used to love her, uh, 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 I used to love her, 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 u